No, it's just it's just design, right? It's there's no eco friendly. There's no green design. Design that is wasteful, or that is in some other way exploitative, that squanders the future for our children. That is bad design. Do you ever feel like you're lost on social media? Like you're just another face in the crowd? Well, what if I told you that there was a platform just for the woodworking industry? It's called WoodNexus. Think of it as the LinkedIn for furniture company owners, or the Facebook for lumber suppliers, or the Instagram for woodworking tools. You get the idea. I'm actually on WoodNexus right now with this show sharing episode information and answering questions about the topics I discuss with each guest. So if you're looking to connect with more people in the industry or looking for new suppliers or just interested in seeing what's out there, check out woodnexus.org. And while you're there, stop by the Building a Furniture Brand page and say, hey, I'll see you there. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Erling Hope, owner of the furniture company, Erling Hope. 40 years in this industry, and Erling still cherishes learning more. He looks on his knowledge as an ever-evolving thing, always collaborating and trying new ideas and materials and solutions to his problems. But even with that heart for exploration, two things always stay true for him his dedication to design and quality. His commitment to both of these principles will not waver, no matter the piece he finds himself working on. So follow along as we talk about scaling without employees, understanding where art comes from, why there should be no such thing as green design, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Erling's story in his own words. Early teens, I was headed into the restaurant industry. Uh, my pop owned a restaurant, and I was, you know, working around the, the area, various restaurants. It's it's a rough industry, but my oldest friend John uh, Depu was a transplanted conch, a Key Wester who who came up here uh, in the seventies, and um, he essentially took me under his wing and and uh, introduced me to the building trades and. Um, and that was it. That was a 16. I was, I was, I was hooked. I, I always loved making things, but to, um, to quote, uh, Barbie in her, her recent biopic, you know, I, I came to see, I, I, I want to be with the people who make meaning, you know, and, and, and so materials, procedures, methods, that's all deeply fascinating to me. The, the, the way the human body interacts with these instruments to somehow convince tree meat to turn into some semblance of geometry. That's all really fascinating, but it's the people, you know, who are in that relationship. And I work with a, a broad team of colleagues. Uh, we all treat each other as subs. So I will give and receive 1099s from the same people in the course of a, of a year. Um, and so, you know, there is that, there is that kind of collegial kind of team approach to the, to the task. That is absolutely necessary. You cannot do it all on your own, no matter how many decades you spend in the trade. So that, that is absolutely essential uh, as far as outreach and uh, uh, spreading the word and getting your name out there. You know, I like to talk to people and I've landed a lot of jobs 
from random conversations in the coffee shop and the lumber yard. Uh, I also have really wonderful kind of promoters out there, uh, folks who work for and with me. They will sing my praises, and I will not object to that. I'm of the generation that the term selling out meant something. Like, you had to do something to actually to sell out. It was a thing that you did. And now it's like these Young's sort of first act of proto-adulthood is to start crafting their brand, is to put out that shingle and to curate their public image. Uh, so it's, it's become a really kind of ubiquitous element in, in contemporary life. The attention I've paid to it has had much more to do with concerns like authenticity and integrity. Um, I have really done all of my, I have gotten some work from social media. I don't want to knock social media. Uh, it's a, it's a mixed bag. It is maybe net good, but mostly my work has come through word of mouth through, uh, rudely interrupting architects and saying, Hey, why don't you give me a shot at that job? Uh, my clients, uh, you know, range from architects to homeowners. I try to stay away from designers. Uh, and then mostly it's about just keeping the clients you have happy. Uh, the good clients. I mean, I have, that's, I, I, I've misspoken there. All of your clients, you want to keep them happy. You don't want to keep all of your clients because while I have clients who I have a genuine warmth and affection for, I clients I genuinely love, um, there are also, you know, those people, first of all, we don't know how we do each other's jobs and my clients have no idea how much work goes into making a kitchen or a library for them. So the element of trust is absolutely critical. You're doing a risky thing. You're, in, you're entering into a financial relationship with people you may or may not know. And that's where a good contract comes in. And my practice, if not my uh, sort of predilection, is to over-communicate as much as possible. I do warn clients I, I may become a pain in the neck with oversharing, but I do want you know, to err on that side, uh, because the most important tool in the shop, come on now, what is it? It's the phone. Best way to sabotage a project is miscommunication. I'm going to get into your client relations, your contracts in a little bit, but I, I want to talk about something you brought up at the beginning of that, and that is the team you developed around you but not a team that you necessarily have on payroll, a team that you've developed that you can go to and they can come to you to get stuff done. And a lot of people want to scale by bringing in employees, but you, you're scaling by bringing in independent contractors and knowing people that you can trust. So can you talk about those relationships and how that works? Because it's a different way to go than scaling your own company by bringing in other people who have those skills. I, I, I agree. Um, paperwork is something, you know, there's task avoidance syndrome. I'm sure that's a thing. And I certainly have that regarding paperwork. I live in that sort of range between when you need employees and when you really you know, my shop is 1,400 square feet. Uh, if I have more space, you know, and I have in the past had situations where my helper can bring in his own work when I can't keep him busy all the time. Um, that doesn't work in a 1,400 square foot shop. So I, you know, I, I, I've sort of cultivated a, a corral of colleagues who can who do things on their own and they're busy like 
all the time, but they'll make space for me because we keep a, a good relationship and I, I pay them what they, what they ask. Someone comes to you with a price, I, I don't try to knock people down on that. That's, that can make things expensive, but you know, fast is slow and expensive is, is, is cheap. Have you cultivated this idea because you used to have a larger shop, you used to have those employees used to be doing that? Or is this just a way that you've developed working over time that works best for you? I, I've, I've worked in a lot of shops. I've worked for Andrea Sinbulgen. I've worked for Fred Stell. Um, I, you know, I've worked for Pashean. So I've seen how much office work goes into keeping those, those machines running. And that's just not, that's not a strong point of, of mine. Um, I can do a mean spreadsheet and, you know, I can track data w when I, when I need to. And every job, there's a phase of it when it is primarily about data management, you know, what pieces have been cut, what procedures have been done to them. But, you know, I mean, managing, managing people, that's something I, that's a weak point. That's a, that's a, that's a significant weak point of mine. I can, I can get along with people and I can get the best out of them, but I need to give them the freedom to do their own sort of determination. If I have someone working with me in the shop, I don't tell them when they show up and when they leave, right? They tell me, uh, and I, I take what people want to bring and it ends up that people most of the time want to bring more than I can handle because it's a good working environment and we do a really nice job. It's such a strange situation and I always try to explain it to people, but you can't really understand it till you go through it yourself where you're a furniture maker and you're building furniture and that's what you're doing. And the second you get an employee, you stop being a furniture maker for the majority of your day. You are a completely different thing. And I hear that in what you're saying, because managing people is not being a furniture maker. There's two totally separate things. And you can relate to employees that are also furniture makers, and you can react to them on a one-to-one -one basis where you're both doing the same thing. But for you and for a lot of people, when you become the boss and you're doing something totally different, you're not trained to do that. You haven't put in place those skills to be able to do that. So the route that you took where you're interacting with other people who are craftspeople, who are doing their own thing along with you, that's an easier way for you to scale than becoming a boss of people and doing the paperwork and telling people when to come in and relating to them that way. Yeah, that's, that's it. Speaking about paperwork and how much fun it is to do. I want to jump back to what you were talking about with contracts because contracts are a big part of doing business in this industry. And it doesn't matter how artistic your furniture is or how utilitarian it is. You need to have a contract to protect yourself. And you were talking about it. So I know that you have some opinions on it. And I'd like to get your input on what your contracts look like and how they've developed over the years that you've been doing this. So, you know, structuring a contract, I'm known for getting into the weeds right away. And that's kind of the nature of the business. You know, an architect makes a scribble on a napkin. And my first stop is to the hinge drawer to see, will, will the door actually swing that way? So 
uh, you know, I, I make sure that no payments, no two payments are the same amount, right? So I won't do like 50-50 or 25-25. It's every every payment is a different amount. So you can quickly, if you have to audit something, you can, you can just look and see what a payment is and know what it was for. Uh, I do try to, you know, progress them smaller and smaller. So it'll be something like 40%, 30%, 20%, 10%. My, my target for something like a kitchen is that the last amount is uh, under your number for your uh, small claims court. Never had to apply that, but it just seemed like a, a good move because if, if something happens, it's, um, then it's in you know, your jurisdiction, etc. I do try not to work for litigators. Happens sometimes. Uh, you, know, you, you do your Google search, you find out client is a lawyer. Sometimes everything looks like a nail. Anything else that you've learned over the years to add into contracts? Because obviously you've had experiences with great clients, but you have also had experiences with hard clients and ones that have probably brought you back to the revision board when it comes to your contracts. Sure. So like often there will be a design element, uh, which you need to kind of build into the contract. You know, one of your jobs, one of the reasons we make the big bucks uh, -um -um, is because part of the job is you have to be something of a fortune teller. You know, six months might go by between when you sign a contract or when you put out the proposal and when you actually receive a deposit check. And in that time, you, you know, the world could have turned sideways again. Uh, material prices might have done a jump. Uh, your team might have taken other projects that they're not available for anymore. You may have taken an injury. You've got to be able to see into the future. It's 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 impossible. Um, so you know, one of the things you have to do to build into your contract design specifically, you know, I'll provide you with three options for this amount of money, and uh, if we need revisions, that'll cost an, an additional seven hundred or something something like that, and that'll give me some room to work. We're talking about contracts, but we've kind of got ahead of ourselves because before contracts comes pricing. So let's talk about your pricing and how you're putting that out there to the client for most of the times one of a kind pieces that you're designing. Yeah, pricing and quoting and estimating that it's it's I I, I want to just say I feel strongly that it is important and 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 I know not everybody agrees with me. Some of my friends and colleagues disagree with me on this one, but I include a an expiration date on every price quote that I put out there. Uh, I will just say this. It's very important to have an expiration date on your price quotes uh, and your estimates because circumstances can change, material prices can change, uh, your team can change. And it, it, it's, it's not just important for you, for the, the managing of your, of your calendar time. It's also treated this way. Uh, it's an opportunity for when that deadline is approaching, uh, for you to reach out to them and say, hey, I haven't heard back from you. The uh, expiration date is coming on this quote. I can. It's easy enough to say I can extend it another two weeks if you'd like. Just say the word. And that keeps the channel open and also gives you information because a lot of times uh, uh, a client will not let you know if they've gone in another direction. And that's an opportunity for them to tell you that. If you could get into a little bit more how you're actually pricing something out, are you doing it by linear foot? Are you doing it by materials? What's your structure for pricing with, say, a kitchen? So I actually have a, a spreadsheet that I, I go back to repeatedly. It has 
three sections in it. The first number I put in is goes in the bottom right corner, and that is my gut number. That's the number that I just feel like belongs on this job. And then I'll ignore that number, put it all the way to the bottom. And then, then I'll do a, a section that is just about linear feet, right? I'll do a linear feet section. Sometimes there's four parts to this thing. I'll do a section that is boxes and drawers and do doors and, and door faces. And then I'll do another one that is man hours and material projections. And I'll average those numbers out. And what's interesting to me is that, I mean, that sounds like a lot of work. It gets easier uh, as you go because you do have a template that you just kind of drag and drop things from. But what's interesting to me is that that gut number is uh, often like remarkably spot on, like within 1%. Uh, um, I've had that happen. And then sometimes it's wildly off. So you need to have those other sort of calculations in there to, to balance it out. I don't wing it. Uh, I'm pretty meticulous about putting a price together. If people look at your work and the pieces that you've put out, there's a very artistic element to it. And people would think that you were an artistic furniture maker. And I say that with quotes because big terms like art don't necessarily cover specific nuances for you, but I'm going to use them as placeholders for describing your work. But when you're talking about your work, you're very much on the technical side. You're saying when an architect scribbles something down, you're already thinking about the hinges that go for that. And you're already thinking about the spreadsheet and you're thinking about it on the technical side. People who are building furniture usually lean towards the artistic approach and they usually lean towards that aspect of it because they think it's an artistic business that they can get into for that reason, but still make some money. When you're thinking about it, how are you thinking about it on this technical side, but also don't lose that artistic approach for your pieces? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how to do this without uh, bringing a little history in. Art is a word that in most of the world's languages, if it exists, it is as an imported word, right? So that word really comes out of a, a specific moment in 1066 when the foppish Parisian Vikings invaded England. Uh, we call them the Normans. Unlike other kind of invasions and occupations, they didn't settle in and marry. They kind of, they built castles everywhere and they stayed in the castles and everything that went in the castle became something different because they never, they didn't change their language. So chicken became poultry, pig became pork, cow became beef, and craft became art, right? So there's, there's that, uh, it's very kind of, it's a, it's a social sort of hierarchical structural thing. Um, and art and commerce, art is, is always subsidized by someone, uh, usually by the artist. Um, but art is also a, a very deep and intrinsic part of what makes humans humans. I've just described uh, a very sort of contingent, sort of happenstance, linguistic thing that happened, but it, it does describe a part of us that is, I mean, some of those caves, some of those caves, you know, you've got to go a, a kilometer, a mile into that cave and crawl on your back to see the buffalo that was painted on the ceiling a few feet above your face. Like somebody did that. Somebody did that 
and it probably wasn't to make a buck. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's a it's a deep need that people have to participate in the creative processes of the world around us. I tend to um, I tend to hold that instinct in in very high regard, uh, and a big part of that is, is fundamentally the act of questioning. Do things have to be done this way? It's always been done this way. Does that mean it always has to be done this way? Right. So that kind of spirit of inquiry is an important part of what makes it, what keeps it interesting, what makes you able to to stay in an industry like this, because you have to. You, you know, it's easy for any livelihood to get funneled into a direction that's not what you intended, and you kind of always have to keep nudging it over into the direction. Uh, that you wanted to. I've, I've done a lot of work for churches and, and synagogues, um, for faith communities. And like, that's a really, that's a really interesting place to be because there you have, there you have the physical environment, objects, images, built environment that is, that is intended to express and engage not only some of our highest callings, right? Some of our most difficult questions is the universe a friendly place. What are our responsibilities to one another? These are environments that are intended to be crafted to cultivate those kinds of inquiries. Um, I don't, I don't treat a kitchen any differently because kitchen is is also a highly liturgical space, right? It's a it's a, a space with great ceremony and gravity. You're, it's a it's a it's a site of life and death. You're you're bringing an end to to the materials you're bringing you're transforming them like as if by some kind of alchemy into different materials and you're sustaining yourself and your and your family um in this in this very kind of day-to-day space um so i try to bring that kind of sensibility uh into into everything i i design and build right chair is a chair you see them every day but one of the things that you kind of have to cultivate if you are cultivating that that special eye is you have to see that thing as if you haven't seen it before. Chair is a weird thing. It's not made for any other creature on the planet. Only human beings, only this body form can fit in that thing, right? Talking about design, you have a perspective on green design that I want to get into. And green design meaning eco-conscious or planet-friendly or whatever words you want to use to describe it. No, it's just it's just design, right? It's there's no eco-friendly, there's no green design design that is wasteful or that is in some other way exploitative that squanders the future for our children. That is bad design. That's just that's just not good design. Plywood, I mean, MDF, uh, you know, engineered materials are brilliant materials. Plywood goes back to, I think, the second dynasty in Egypt. There's a chair in the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art with a plywood seat from the second dynastic period of Egypt. Responsible use of materials. Uh, I probably produce three cubic yards of trash of genuine refuse for my shop. And that's going kind of full bore because I have a sort of, um, I don't know if you call it vertical integration, but I, I mean, I'll go from kitchen to small curio boxes. So I can use materials starting with the big stuff, 
And then you get smaller pieces, and then that gets into smaller pieces, and then smaller pieces, right? So there's a way to kind of bring your material use. I mean, it's efficiency. It's ethical, but it's also efficiency. You have the passion for this, and, I, and I'm hearing that in your voice, and I understand exactly what you're saying, where if you build a piece of furniture that is so good, and I'm saying good as in design-wise, and also construction-wise, and also quality-wise, if it's so good that the client doesn't throw it out, that generations after them don't throw it out, then as long as it's not made out of radioactive material or something like that, it's not yeah. going to be hurting the client. It's not going to be hurting the planet. It's going to continue to be there. And even if it's not made out of the most eco-friendly and eco-conscious material there was at that time, if nobody ever has to make something else to replace it, then that's considered yeah. whatever all this green design is is supposed to be following. So I understand exactly what you're saying, where good design in whatever way that is, that is as eco-friendly as an eco-friendly design or an eco-friendly material. So I, I hear what you're saying on that. You're shining a light on a really interesting uh, point, which is not just about like material choice and efficiencies, but also the aesthetics of the thing. If if you are executing designs that are going to be dated in ten years, if they're if they're if they're not going to be, you know, if they're not going to have that kind of aesthetic sus sustaining power, then that is another kind of you know that's another kind of wastefulness in a way, right? So there's 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 high stakes in making a pretty thing. How are you dealing with balancing your design sense and your custom furniture client's design sense? Right. I mean, there are ideals, which I've been speaking from ideals here. Uh, and then there's the real world where other people have other opinions and other experiences. And then there's the brute fact that the act of creation, making something, there's an element of destructiveness in that. You know, there's a tree that went down there's some perfectly good material that could go into something else that you're going to use for this experimental piece that might turn into a big nothing, but you still got to kind of chase it down. The fact that as, uh, as I've experienced and I've heard a couple of your other guests comment, you know, sometimes the best insights, discoveries, ideas come from cutoffs, come from the scrap bin. Like, what is this piece, right? This is a funny shape. Or, you know, just seeing something the wrong way. Right. So I'm, I'm speaking idealistically, but this is the real world and the real world. We humans uh, are always going to kind of stumble through things. If you have any kind of optimism, it, it can't be built on, an, on, on a utopian optimism. Right. We're not going to make a perfect world. We're just going to be we're going to stumble through. And all we can do is try to make things a little better than we found them. I think that's a perfect segue into one of my favorite questions, and that's what I ask everybody, is about how you built your company and how you've built your business and your brand moving forward. And I'm sure in the last 40 years of doing this, you've stumbled a lot and you've learned from those stumbles, hopefully. So for people who want to start a furniture company or for people who have been doing this for a while, what's some of the things that you want to share with those people to help them run their furniture companies better? I've really kind of exploited a kind of bottom-up approach to things where my main advocates are the carpenters and the contractors who are, who are with me in the field, who are seeing what I'm doing, and who also know that I'm 
on their side. I will challenge them when they say and do stupid things, but they know that I'm on their side, right? And so I've been in rooms where I'm underneath or inside a cat. They don't know I'm there. I'm in the pan. I'm working on something. They can't see me. And I'll hear the contractor bragging to some designer or architect uh, that this is an Erling Hope kitchen. And, uh, you know, the, they don't necessarily know what that means, but the contractor is conveying a sense of regard and respect for that name. Um, so they know, like, the details that go into a good kitchen or a table, most of the details that matter will never be seen by any. You're the only one who will see them, right? So they know that there's quality happening here. I don't, I don't get callbacks to repair things. You know what I mean? I don't get callbacks for, for faulty, because I don't want to have to afford that. You know, it, it's a much better investment to do it right the first time. I think that anyone at any level in their business can take a lot of good advice from that. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate you sharing all the other things that you have during this conversation. And I want to thank you for sharing that insight and wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Ethan, this has been a great conversation. I love your show and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.